Father, Lord, we thank you for being the God of creation. We thank you for being the God of our salvation, our strong tower, our, our tower of refuge that we can come into. And uh, we have atonement. We have righteousness, all because of what your Son has done, and we thank you for that. Lord, we ask that you would help us bring clarity to your word, that you would help us think well upon it, that we may um, be changed because of it, that we may be conformed to the image of your Son through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I've got a lot of ground to cover. Verses 25 through 40, there's a lot packed in here. And there's a lot of interpretive issues that we have to get into. But I wanted to finish up chapter 7 because a lot of the applications uh, tend to get a little bit redundant. And I didn't want to um, keep doing that to you. So typically, if you were going to read 1 Corinthians, you'd probably read all of chapter 7. And you'd make your application and be done with it. So I want to get through the chapter... And so let me um, get started right away and just talk about Paul's dilemma in these verses. Paul's dilemma is this. How can Paul recommend celibacy without approving of the ascetic reasons by many of the Corinthians? Okay. In other words, Paul is going to agree with them in verse 26 that it is indeed good for a man um, to not touch a woman if he can. But the point is Paul is agreeing with them on that point for a different reason than the aesthetics. Remember, an aesthetic is somebody who believes... Didn't I say that? Oh, okay. (laughs) These are the type of people that believe that if they, in fact, will withstrain or withdraw from certain activities, they will gain favor with the spiritual world. They will somehow gain favor in the eyes of God. Okay? So Paul is saying, no, that's not the case. But there is, in fact, an advantage to being single, and it is that you can, in fact, be more fully devoted to the things of God, okay? So let me show you how this section plays out. There's four basic sections in these verses. 1 Corinthians 7, 25-28, Paul alludes to the Corinthian slogan. Again, he agrees with them, but he qualifies it as to why. Verses 29-35, Paul offers two reasons for his preference for celibacy, but he puts no restraint on them. That's important. If you want to get married, get married. There's, Paul is certainly not teaching a law of God that you can't get married. If you want to remain single, remain single. Verses 36 to 38, Paul teaches that both options, again, marriage and celibacy, are open to them. And then finally, 39 through 40, Paul reminds women that they are bound to their husbands as long as he lives. And, of course, that would apply the other way as well. If he dies, however, both options are again available. And, of course, the death isn't of Paul but of the husband. I think that's clear, right? Okay, so those are the four sections. And with that, let me get into the first verse. And the question we have to answer here is, who are the virgins? Paul writes verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 7. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Notice right away we have a now concerning. You guys probably all remember we had that discussion about Perry Day. And Perry Day is that prepositional phrase that has to do with the beginning of a new thought. However, it's always related to the context of what has gone before and what is following after. And we saw the importance of that in Matthew 24. Remember that tipped us off that Jesus is beginning a new section? So anyway, Perry Day is here again. Now concerning, and the discussion here is the virgins, who are they? And there's really been three different views. The first is that this section concerns fathers who are giving their daughters away in marriage. Okay. Now, where we're going to actually come down to the answer as to who these virgins are comes in verse 36 of this section. 
Okay, so that's where we're going to finally answer who these virgins are. But I'll show you my take on it um, right away. I don't think it's fathers who are giving their daughters away in marriage. I don't think that's what this section is about. Others believe that this section concerns men and women who are living in a spiritual marriage. The men are struggling and are wondering if they can marry. Well, what in the world would be a spiritual marriage? Well, that'd be a marriage where you had the normal relations between a man and a woman, but all of a sudden you had these hyper-spiritual people at Corinth who were saying, hey, if you um, don't stop having the normal relations between a man and a woman, you're not going to be spiritual. You're not going to be like the angels above, and therefore you have to quit. So these people would have bought into that, and they'd say, you know what, we're married, but we're not going to touch each other again. That'd be the idea. So that'd be a spiritual marriage. The third option is that this section concerns betrothed women and their fiancés, okay, who are being told by the pneumatics, again, the hyper-spiritualists, that they cannot marry, okay? I think that that's what this section is about. And again, I'll be proving that to you, hopefully, in verse 36. I think that's the best take in this section, okay? Now, with that, let me um, also talk about another item concerning this verse. When I was... Um, a student at Northwestern College. I remember we had a discussion one time in class and a student had raised an objection using this passage. And notice it says, I, Paul says, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. A student latched onto this idea of an opinion and he said, here what Paul is saying is not scripture and therefore we can disregard it. And I'm going to be showing you that that's not a good reading of it. And we have several clues. Let me clue you in on to one of them. One of them is this preposition by. It comes from hupa, okay, which is fun to say. Say it five times, you own it. Hupa. And hupa, typically, when it is used with a genitive construction, it has to do with a preposition of agency. What's a, a genitive construction? Anything that shows possession. So certainly the mercy is of the Lord. It's the Lord's mercy. Okay, so the preposition hupa then would be used as a preposition of agency. In other words, the Lord is the agent or the means by which Paul is given mercy. And it is for a purpose. Okay, in other words, Paul is purposely being given mercy so that he tells the truth. That's what you're gleaning from this verse. And a good rendering, I think, of is trustworthy. This is actually an infinitive. So let me just show you how I would render this verse or this section of it, from here to here. This is probably how I would say it. But I give an opinion as one who received mercy by the Lord to be trustworthy. Because this is actually an infinitive. And the reason why that's significant is infinitives all often denote purpose. Okay, so why does that help us? Well, the big point is this. Paul was given mercy for the purpose of being trustworthy. Paul, if he had been left to his own devices, would have been going on throughout his entire life murdering Christians right, uh, really repudiating the very doctrines that now he taught and espouses, okay? So in other words, it's the mercy of the Lord that allowed him to be an apostle and therefore become trustworthy. If he doesn't become an apostle, by God's grace, he's not trustworthy. So this is really an important apostolic claim. He's trustworthy because the mercy of the Lord was given to him, and therefore his word is binding, okay? We can't say, well, that's just Paul's opinion. It's not from the Lord. So what does it mean when he says, I have no command of the Lord? He's, remember, we talked about this issue earlier on in 1 Corinthians 7. He's simply saying that during Christ's earthly ministry, Jesus had no specific teachings while he was here. However, that doesn't mean this isn't from God because Paul is an inspired writer uh, because he is, in fact, an apostle. Okay, 
I think that's the best understanding of this passage. So again, nobody can claim, well, that's just Paul's opinion. We can disregard what he's saying. No, this is from God. Because by mercy that was given from the Lord, he is trustworthy as an apostle. That's how I would understand it. Okay, now let's move on to um, verse 26 through 28. And as you can see here, this is where Paul is agreeing with the Corinthian slogan. He starts off saying, I think then that this is a good that this is good in view of the present distress. That is it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. Now, the discussion on this section, first of all, focuses on what is the present distress and what is the trouble that Paul's alluding to here, okay? There's really a couple of choices. The first is many scholars think that the present distress is the death that came upon some at Corinth due to their abuse of the Lord's Supper. Remember Paul talks about that, 1 Corinthians 11.30, that some, in fact, had died. Now, the problem with that view is that oftentimes this term present distress in fact, I wrote down, I should break out my notes on this. The present distress, that term distress, is anagike, and it actually comes from Luke 21:23 and 1 Thessalonians 3, 7. It can be either used for the distress that we're going to have during uh, the tribulation period, or generically, the distress that comes upon all Christians in this life. Why? Because you're just a sojourner. You're a member of the kingdom of God and the world hates you because of it. Okay. Now, this term present is important because some translations, and you may have one here this morning, they translate it impending. And that changes things slightly because if it's an impending distress, that could be referring to the tribulation period. So Paul would have in view that, hey, we don't know when the tribulation period is coming. In light of that, you ought to act this way. But it should be better rendered as the New American Standard has it present because it's a perfect active verb. A perfect verb, members, something happens in the past, it's perfectly completed, but its effect is still with us today. And so if the effect is still with you today, it's present. Okay, do you see what I'm saying? So the way the NASB has that is correct. So that would give us more credence that it's not the tribulation period distress, but it's the distress that occurs in the normal day-to-day activities of life for every believer. The same thing applies to the term trouble. That's thalipsis or thlipsis. And that's used, for instance, in Matthew 24, 21, if you recall the passage where Jesus says um, there would be great tribulation. And he's referring to the tribulation period. In fact, the tribulation would be so great at, at the midpoint on that if, in fact, it had not been cut short, no flesh would survive. Okay, so the point being, friends, is certainly these terms are used of the tribulation that we come into during the tribulation period, but I think it's best rendered or understood as the tribulation that is now present, that now occurs in the life of every believer because you're a member of the kingdom of God. And one of the clues that we have is this little thing here, in this life. Okay, remember Acts 14.22, it says, through tribulation we enter the kingdom of God, right? I think that's in Acts 14.22. So the point is, is 
I think that the present distress, the trouble, and the fact that it's in this life, Paul is referring to the troubles that people are going to go through as believers in the normal course of this world. And the, the analogy I like to make is, think of pregnancy. Okay, You and I are right now, being that we're in the last days, we're pregnant. But once the 70th week breaks forth upon the earth, that is the seven-year tribulation period, that's the labor pains. And so certainly I know my wife, when she was pregnant, she had troubles in this world. Okay, I mean, there was big troubles. But it even gets worse when the water breaks. That's what happened to me. Okay, Then there's big trouble. But the point is, is the distress and the trouble we have now uh, is going to just be greatly accelerated and gets worse within the tribulation period. That's how I would see the distinction. Okay, So again, it has to be, um, or let me just say it this way, it can't be, related, I think, to the Corinthians problem in 1130 because it's in this life. I think Paul is talking about a generic problem for all Christians. Okay? So I think number two is the best option here. All right, now, the other thing I want to point out in this verse is notice where it says wife three times. There's a little bit of an issue here because should we understand it as wife or woman? The term gune can be understand or translated woman or wife. Okay? And often... Of course, a wife would be a woman, <laughs> right? So that obviously seems, yeah, all the, yeah, exactly, all the time. Now, notice I have here, it says 129 times in the New Testament, gune is used for woman in the New Testament, 92 times for wife. Don't let those numbers say, well, there's 129 usages of wife, or rather woman, therefore that's what we should go with. Context determines how it should be used here. My point in showing you that is that it can go either way. But I think we have a good clue that it should actually be translated woman. And the clue that we have is here in the term released. It comes from luo. And luo is never used in the New Testament for divorce. Okay. In fact, when we had looked at divorce earlier on in this section in 1 Corinthians 7, we had talked about the three terms that were used of divorce, it's korizo, afiemi, and apaluo. Okay? Now, luo, to be sure, can be used for breaking a contractual agreement, but never, never does Paul or anyone else in the New Testament use it for divorce. Now, why does that help us? Well, let's try to do a little reconstruction here. If, in fact, it is the case that the issue is that there's a man and a woman who are uh, fiancés together, they're betrothed or they're engaged, then it would make good sense that the breaking or the being released would be the being released from the engagement, not necessarily the marriage. Okay, So let's just think of it that way then. If you say, are you bound to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Released from what? Well, the engagement. Okay, Are you released from a woman? Do not seek a woman. Okay, Now, that, that would be my understanding of it because, again, released is never used for divorce. Now we come to a, a contrastive but. But if you marry, Paul says, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm going to, or I'm trying to spare you. This last part of the verse where it says, yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. That's important to our interpretation later on. Because Paul is agreeing that there is an advantage to remaining single. But it's not a spiritual advantage. The advantage is just that you're able to devote yourself more fully to the timing or to the ministry of the Lord and so forth. That's how I would understand it. Okay? So remember that last part of the verse. But now, 
My point is with this, where he says, but if you marry, realize that would incorporate both betrothal and, and marriage. Because you obviously, if you break off your engagement, you're not going to be married anyway, right? So again, Paul is not for, forbidding betrothal or marriage. It's completely allowable. And again, I think the best understanding of this passage is that it has to do with a man and woman being engaged. Okay? Now, the next thing in verse 29, we see that the revelation draws near, and therefore we ought to understand that we ought to live differently. Paul continues, verse 29, he says, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. Okay? Now, what's interesting is this time has been shortened. That term shortened is an interesting one. It comes from sustello, and these are actually synonyms. In other words, they're different words, but they mean really the same thing. This comes from a, a lexicon called lo-nida, all right? And this is the definition of this term, to lo-nida. It says, to extend in time with focus upon the end point, to draw near, to draw to a close. And so certainly this term being shortened has the idea that we know we're in the last days, we know that the coming of the Lord is imminent, But there's a nuance to it in that because we have seen the end, we know the end of the movie, so to speak, we are called to live in a different way. It has that nuance because it's the idea that the ending has been wrapped up and we've been shown it. Okay, let me just show you an example of why I think that has that nuance. Acts 5, 6, Luke writes this, he says, The young men, and remember this is the burial of Ananias, he says, The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Here, Sustello, which is being translated as shortened here, is being translated here as covered him up. And so it's the idea that it's been wrapped up, it's been finished. The, the guy, is he's, he's covered up, they're going to bury him, right? And so I think the, the meaning of this term is interesting because, again, it's the idea that this time period has been wrapped up and it has been shown to us, who are the people of God, so that we may live differently. We're the ones who know the beginning from the end, or the end from the beginning, or both, right? Okay, it's like knowing the end of the joke, and therefore you you use your words rightly so you get the punchline out, okay? That's, I think, the indication or the implication of it. Okay, now, let me just show you how a synonym is being used here. Uh, this prokopto uh, in Romans thirteen twelve it says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The reason I'm showing you that is you can certainly see that imminence is implied. Okay, now what is the doctrine of imminence that we had talked about earlier? Remember in 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, uh, earlier we talked about the doctrine of imminence when we looked at this passage where Paul says, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. That's verse 5. Then we got to verse 7, and here's the purpose. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This term awaiting, I believe it's apodecami, and it maybe prosdecami, but I think it's apodecami. And there it's in the present tense. Why was that significant? Do you remember we said it was significant because that indicates that there's this current, ongoing expectation. It's not that we, in other words, notice it says that we, he doesn't say in any gift that we should await the revelation or that there's this hint that it's a, future thing that we should be doing, but we're currently ongoing or we're undergoing ongoing awaiting. Why? Because it can happen at any time. The very definition of imminence means that something can occur at any moment, 
but it doesn't necessarily have to. It's impending. It could happen 100 years from now. It could happen the next second, but it can happen at any time, okay? And therefore, we ought to be awaiting for it. So certainly, this idea, I think, applies to 1 Corinthians 7.29, that because the time has been shortened, we know the end from the beginning, we ought to live lives that are different. We don't break our contractual obligations, whether they be business or in marriage, but we live with a degree of urgency and we live, as uh, Mike Gendron said last week, the Great Commission is our first concern. That's exactly, I think, what Paul is getting at here. So he continues then in verses 29 through 31. Again, he says, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Now this is, to me, it was a tough section. What is Paul saying here? And in fact, it even seems to a certain degree that Paul is contradicting himself. Of course, we know that he's not. But anytime, it's interesting, anytime you think that the scriptures are contradicting themselves, it really pushes you to understand what the, the writer is actually saying. Is Paul contradicting himself? Remember in Romans twelve fifteen, Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Well, now he's saying, And those who weep as though they did not weep and rejoice as those that, you know, they did not rejoice. So the point is he seems to be contradicting himself what he says elsewhere. What's the point here? Well, I think the clue to this passage is the phrase that's used repeatedly, it's as though. And that comes from the Greek hos, and it means just as or as though. Uh, and the way I think of this is, just think when you're a kid, a lot of you guys will understand this maybe a little bit better, but when you're playing touch football, you would play as though you were an NFL player. Now, were you really an NFL player? I remember saying Earl Campbell, and I'd put out a you know, stiff arm, and, well, of course, I'm no Earl Campbell. Otherwise, I'd, anyway. But the point being is, it was as though you were. And so the point is, is Paul isn't saying, Paul is not saying if you have a wife, break off your obligations. It's just that you're to act as though you don't have one. But again, he is not saying that you should mistreat your wife, that you should neglect your wife. It's just that, and oh, one more thing. Let me just cut to the chase, and I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this funeral analogy. Paul is teaching, this is the big point, I think. Paul is teaching the Corinthians that what defines their existence and attitudes is not their social or marital status, but their salvation, okay? That's the issue. And now this funeral analogy, see if this works for you. You're, let's just say you're a close, maybe I should use a wedding. Wedding's happier. It's the same point. Your daughter's going to get married, okay? Now, just because your daughter's going to get married, let's say, Larry, you have a daughter and your daughter's going to get married, it doesn't mean Larry doesn't have other contractual obligations, like he doesn't have work. He can't neglect all those things. But for that time where the... The, the wedding planning is going on. He has all these things that he genuinely is. He's a son, he's a brother, he's a friend, and you know he's a worker and so forth. He doesn't break those things, but that his focus is upon the wedding. I think that's what Paul is getting at. Yes, you and I have all these demands on who we are, but our focus is always first and foremost on the Great Commission. Why? Because we know the time is short. Our focus is always on glorifying God. Why? Because the time is short. We are the people of God who know the end from the beginning. Okay, I think that's what Paul is saying here. 
Again, he's not giving any credence to those who would say, well, I can break off my contractual obligations, whatever they may be. Okay? All right. Oh, one other thing. It's interesting. There's a term. Sometimes I put so much stuff on these slides, I can't even remember what I have on there. (laughs) That's my problem. But uh, here we have parago. That's passing away. It's interesting. This is in the present tense. And again, it's the idea that the world as it is now is currently in the process of passing away. It's not that it will pass away. It's that it is. It is passing away. Every moment that goes by, we're getting closer to what? the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the rapture. And we don't know when that time is up. But Paul can be sure of this, that's passing away, this former world. So that's the idea. We should, again, live as people who know the end from the beginning. Now, i got to get into verses uh, 32 through 35. I want to talk about three different views. And this is a tricky area here. And and by way of setting this up, I want to show you the first verse. And I'm going to talk about how to interpret this. The first verse, verse 32, Paul begins by saying, but I want you to be free from concern. The debate over verses 32-35 stem from what is the concern that Paul wants us to be free from. Okay, that's what we're we're going to have to be wrestling with. Now, when we get to verse 32b, he says, and I'm paraphrasing because I couldn't fit it all on the slide, but this is a good paraphrase. The unmarried, their concern is for pleasing the Lord. And then the second part of this verse 32b is, but the married, their concern is for pleasing their wife and the Lord. They have a divided attention, don't they? Okay. Now, the three different views concerning these verses stems from how do we understand this term concern here? The the first view I'm going to show you is what's called the traditional view. And that would see the concern in verse 32b, the first one, as a positive concern. That is, we're concerned for the things of the Lord. The second concern would be a negative one. Okay? Well, your, your concern is divvied up between a family and a wife and the Lord and so forth. Okay? There's a scholar named Barrett. Barrett sees the, both concerns as negative. That is, um, again, the Corinthians were put upon by these super hyper-spiritual people that said, you can't be married. You can't be engaged in sexual relations. You're not spiritual if you do that. And so it created angst for the unmarried because maybe they wanted to get married, right? And they said, well, we better not. We're not going to be spiritual. And those who were married, they said, well, by golly, we're not going to be spiritual. We better stay in separate bedrooms, if you, you know, right? So the point being is that created angst. So Barrett sees both concerns as negative. Now, Gordon Fee sees both concerns as positive. You can be concerned for the things of the Lord, and you can be concerned for pleasing the wife, and, um, and the family and the Lord. And no, no matter what you do, it's good in God's eyes. Okay. Now, I agree with the sentiment of Fee, but I think that he may be wrong in this case. Let me just show you again. The first option, the traditional view, is that Paul writes to endorse the single life so that people live fully devoted lives to the Lord. Uh, this does not imply that Paul prohibits marriage in any way. Okay. Get, we have to get that through our minds. He's not prohibiting marriage in any way. But the free from concern up here is that we're free from the cares of marriage. Okay, again, there's this draw on your attention. And again, you're free to be married, but it's if you are, you're going to have divided attention. Okay, that's the idea. Uh, Barrett's view is that both unmarried and married are worried about pleasing the Lord due to... What is it? What did I say last time? Oh, <laughs> Oh, so I did. I know how to say it. Then I was worried. I don't know how to say it at all. Asceticism. Oh, good. Did I say it right? 
Good. All right. I was worried. I don't know how to say the term, so I came to it. I was getting worried. Okay. So the Lord due to asceticism and should not be. So the point is, is that this free from concern up here is free from the asceticism, right? Okay. I hope that all makes sense. Now, the third view is Gordon Fee's view that both the unmarried and the married are doing something positive. That is, the unmarried equals caring for the Lord, whereas married means caring for the Lord and the family, and both are good. So Paul wants both to realize that their lot in life is pleasing to the Lord. So free from concern, then, is synonymous uh, to being free to live in God's calling wherever it is. Now, I agree that certainly Paul maintains that. I don't think that's what's being stated in these verses, however. I think the traditional view has the most going for it. Okay, let me explain why. Gordon Fee's critique of the traditional rendering of this passage, his main critique is this, over this term concern. He says the concern in the traditional view is used two different ways in the same verse. In other words, one is positive, then the one is negative. However, we have an indication within the verse itself that that is in fact what's going on because we have a but. So in other words, concern certainly is being used differently because otherwise you wouldn't have this contrast of but. And that contrast of but is often used by Paul. So certainly we have good evidence that the writer, that is Paul, is using concern in two different ways. Okay, now I'm going to show you the context. I want to build the case that the traditional view is correct. And I'm going to show you starting in verse 28. Remember, I thought, I, I thought this was an important verse. Remember what Paul said in verse 28. He says, But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. So to me, it only makes sense, the traditional view, in light of the fact that he, Paul is trying to spare people from the troubles that they find within marriage. Right? How does that correspond to Fee's view? Fee is saying, well... It doesn't matter which view you hold to. You can either just be dedicated purely to the Lord or to the Lord in the family. Well, the point is, is Paul says, says here that there's an advantage for being single. And so that corresponds better, I think, to the traditional view. So the sparing here would be that Paul is engaged, or I'm sorry, the sparing that Paul is engaged in must be related to the cares within marriage. Okay, so he wants to spare you your divided attention that you would have within the marriage. I think that's, that's the only way you can read that. Otherwise, what would we be trying to spare you? So that's why the traditional rendering, verse 36, I think, is best. Um, verses 29 through 31, Paul continued. Remember, he said, But this I say, brethren, and he says, As though, as though, as though, as though, as if the form of this world is passing away. Right? And then he goes on into verse 32 and 35, and he says, But I want you to be free from concern. Then this but is important. Why? Because it sets uh, a contrast be- from what he said pr- previously. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, right? And then you have a but. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. So again, let me just wrap this up for you. Gordon Fee is saying concerned is being used two different ways by those who hold to the traditional rendering. But it should be because there's a but there. It's a contrast of but. One is concerned only for the Lord. The other person divided, has divided attention. Okay? And so the issue is the divided attention. That is what the problem is about. And he goes on. He says, The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But, another contrast, one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say 
to your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you. So Paul isn't saying that you can't get married. He's not saying that. And he would never do that, right? But what he's saying is, is you're going to have a disadvantage that your attention is going to be divided. And he says, but to promote, another but, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So what advantage is there, friends, in being single? You have undistracted devotion. Your time is not divided. Okay, And that's why it only makes sense. That's why Paul starts this section, 1 Corinthians 7.26, by saying, I agree, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. However, he's not agreeing for the, the same reasons that the aesthetics are. That is, you get some spiritual benefit from doing so. Okay, that's the point. So again, I think the traditional rendering would make more sense of it. There has to be a reason why it's an advantage of being single, or there's an advantage of being single. And I don't think Fee's view lends itself to there being any advantage of being single. Okay? So with that, we come to verses 36 to 38. I'm sorry, this is a lot of material here, but we want to get through chapter 7. So let me continue on then. We see men and women are free to marry. Paul continues, says, But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Okay? Now, believe it or not, there's interpretive issues with this passage. Okay? Uh, and trust me, there's only water in here. <laughs> this isn't driving me to drink or anything. Okay. <laughs> All right. So now the first thing we have to do is there's a couple takes on this. The first take is that fathers are giving their daughters away in marriage. Okay. The, the second take is this, that this section has to do with men who are betrothed or engaged to a virgin. So it's about two fiancés. Okay. And I think it's the second interpretation is better. The first thing I want to show you is notice you see this term daughter. If you have the New American Standard, you'll have it italicized. Other versions probably do as well. That's not original to the Greek text. And that changes the way we think about it, doesn't it? Because notice it says anyone who's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin, not towards the virgin daughter. Okay? What I think we have here, being that daughter is here, is it shows that the New American Standard Bible is engaged in interpretation. Now, certainly they italicized it, but that's their view, that in fact they believe that these are fathers giving their daughters in marriage. But the real debate stems from this phrase up here where it says, if she is past her youth. I'm going to be making the claim that it would be better rendered, believe it or not, if he is in his prime or if he, is, if he cannot control his passions. Okay, So if she is past her youth, is better rendered if he is in his prime and therefore can't control himself. Okay, Now you're probably wondering, wow, that seems like a stretch. Well, let me show you why I hold to that. Okay. The issue is it surrounds this phrase, if she is past her youth. The, the whole discussion of this passage stems around this verb is. And I thought I would never agree with Bill Clinton. It has to do with the definition of is, right? What, is the, what does is, is or mean or what? But nonetheless, that's what we have here. So in this Greek passage, the term is, the verb, is right here. And what we have to do is we have to figure out, is is referring to the she or is it back to the man? Okay, because remember, the she it really isn't actually there. They, they've supplied that for us. 
Okay, so in other words, I should say, is this is referring back to the virgin or the man? Okay, let me show you the virgin in this sentence. So we have to say this is the verb. It's an active subjunctive form of ame. Remember when Jesus says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am? This is the, uh, a form of that. It's just in the subjunctive, which has to do with ability or probability or permission. Okay, so is this referring to Parthenon, which is feminine? That's the virgin. Or is it referring back to the subject, tis, which is any man? Any man who is becoming, or has, um, right here it's actually consider, becoming or is unbecoming toward the virgin, his virgin, literally. Okay, so in other words, is the is referring to what we have in pink, that is the virgin, or is it referring back to the subject? Now, Parthenon is actually accusative. That means it's in the case for the direct object. This is actually the subject here. That is the man. Now, why is that important? Well, notice, friends, it says, but if any man. This is a dependent clause. And a dependent clause, it has to have the verb in the next uh, clause. It has to link up to the subject. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Because a dependent clause is dependent. It doesn't make any sense unless you have something that completes the clause. And therefore, the point is, is that the verb has to be linking back to the subject, which is the man. Do you, do you follow my, my reasoning? Never will you have a dependent clause have a verb that doesn't link to the subject. Because otherwise, this, the next clause doesn't make any sense. You don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, Anyway, I can't think of one off the top of my head. But the point is, is that's the way it has to be. So it would be better to understand then, this is saying, if he, okay, rather than she, all right? And then the other point here is this term, hooper akmas. Now, what in the world is that? Well, it's this term right here, past her youth, okay? It literally can be rendered that they can't control themselves or that they are in the prime of their passions, Okay, so let me just read this how I would understand it. Paul is saying, I think he says, but if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly, and why is he acting unbecomingly? Because he can't control his passions. That's why. He can't control his passions, so he's acting unbecomingly towards his virgin. That is the one who he's engaged to. And then it goes on to say, if he is in his prime and he can't control his passion, that would be the idea. And if he must, And if it must be so... Let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Now we come to one other issue. Notice they have in the New American Standard, let her marry. It's a very bad translation, I think, because it's actually a third-person plural. Um, here it comes from gam uh, etosan, and it's a third-person plural, so it should be let them marry. But again, the translator is showing their bias by putting the her in there. Okay. So here's how I would read it. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly towards his virgin, if he is burning with passion because he's in his prime would be the idea, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Okay? That's the principle that Paul is actually laying out. And so you see you get a far different take. And that's why the New American Standard had to insert daughter, daughter, daughter because they were stuck on this idea that it's a man giving, you know, uh, a father giving his daughter away in marriage. I don't think that that's what the passage is about. The passage in this whole section is about two fiancés. And the aesthetics were saying, how dare you 
remain betrothed to one another. After all, if you engage in marriage and therefore the normal relations in marriage, you're going to be unspiritual. And so Paul is saying, no, no, you're free to do what you want. If you want to get married, get married. Stay engaged, get married. But if you don't, you're doing well. You're doing well as well. Okay. In fact, you'll have more time for the Lord. I think that's what this whole section is about. Okay. Does that all make sense? I know I threw a lot at you, and um, but I wanted to. I didn't want to just say, "Well, the NAS is wrong, and I'm right, and Gordon Fee is right." I, I think that I had to show you some evidence and what the debate is about. Okay. So the final section is actually fairly easy. Verses 39 through 40, "Till death do us part." He says, "A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead." She is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Again, he's an apostle. What he says is binding. But notice he says, only in the Lord. Friends, marriage is to be only between two believers. Why? Otherwise, you have the same problems that the Israelites had when they were living in Canaan and they started going after their false gods. We're to be of one purpose. We're to not be unequally yoked in those things. So we're to marry only in the Lord. And notice when he says a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, that really applies the other way as well. It's a husband is bound to her, his wife as long as she lives as well. Okay? So with that, let me just try to give you a wrap-up of 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 40. And really remember that Paul, the big point in this whole section is that he is saying those who are claiming that they have some spiritual benefit from refraining from the normal relations between a man and a woman in marriage, they're all wet. It's not true. You cannot gain any more standing or privilege before God than that which you already have in Jesus Christ. You and I can have no greater standing than being clothed by the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so this idea that the aesthetics had is completely bunk, right? So the Corinthians' aesthetics were saying this. They were saying celibacy makes you more spiritual. The apostle Paul said nonsense, celibacy is a gift. Remember, earlier on in 1 Corinthians 7, Jesus may call you to the gift of being single, we talked about, and he may give the gift of being married to some. But it's a gifting from God, one way or the other. And so not everybody can be celibate. And so therefore, it was really abusive that these hyper-spiritualists at Corinth were doing that. The Corinthians were saying that prostitutes are okay. Why? Because what we do in this body, it doesn't matter. We're like the angels. We've already arrived on the scene. We're already hyper-spiritual, right? Well, Paul says, nonsense. You're joined to Christ. How dare you join yourself to a harlot? Okay, So, again, Paul is saying that there are ethical obligations to being a Christian. Yes, Paul taught that you're free from circumcision, that you're free from following Sabbath, but those things were designed to pass away. That was part of the ceremonial and the civil law, but the moral law of God stands forever. Okay, so they had that confused. And now, to just succinctly wrap it up, let me just read this. And I wrote this last night or a few nights ago, so I hope it's good. Paul taught the Corinthians that celibacy does not make one more spiritual. Paul taught that to be single or married was a vocation from Christ and that each person was to glorify God in whatever social setting to which they had been called. 
To Paul, marriage is a covenant before God that must be honored until death. Social status, marital status, and the cares of this world are all secondary to the status that ultimately matters, right standing before God in Christ Jesus. I think that's what this section is all about. So with that, I am going to be quiet, and I'll take your comments and questions. I was wondering uh, when he's talking about the concerns of the husband to care for his wife. Yeah. We know that the relationship, if it's properly done, that the man's love for his wife is like Christ's love for the church and that that's a noble thing yeah. and an honorable thing and something that actually is a type of Christ and expressed to the world. And I wondered if the concerns there, how do you put it, if celibacy is a gift... Yeah then the man who has burning with passions and is acting unbecomingly, that's uh, guidance from God that he doesn't have the gift of celibacy and he should go forward right. with the gift of marriage that God has given him. Right. In the same way, though, once he enters into marriage, the cares of this world that he may fight against uh, are magnified, they're multiplied, because now yeah. he's embracing somebody else that might be afflicted with the cares of the world in a way that's beyond his control. Hmm. So what I wonder about the concerns, in essence, in marrying, I'm marrying the concerns of my wife hmm. and her, her and the cares of the world that affect her are yeah. beyond my control, and that's where the weakness is. The weakness hmm. is actually... How do I put it? The weakness in the covenant of marriage is that we're both fallible. And if we weren't fallible and yeah. that we did express the, uh, the uh, has Christ loved the church, then that type would be perfect and it would be, it'd be a common, it would be the same. But the yeah. fact that I'm marrying somebody else who's fallible makes, those, makes our fallibilities even, even more so. Right, it magnifies it exponentially perhaps. And well, Yeah, well, that's good. I never thought of that. Yeah, that's interesting. Just yeah. a question for you on yeah. the verse 38. Yeah. Um, when, if one reads it then as a pair of fiancés, mm-hmm. when it says, so then he who gives his own virgin in marriage does mm-hmm. well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better, is that give uh, still, get, would that be referring to the father there, or is it a take? Can it also be translated take? I know. That's a sticky wicket, isn't it? No, it really is give. That's the best. I think it's didomy, if I remember. Does anybody have their Greek New Testament? We have a lot of people that held those. But I think it is give. I think that's a good rendering of it. Um, Paul's gone. Somebody have that? I, I think that <laughs> the way I would understand that is that this giving would be a giving of... Um, it's almost the idea that the the husband is giving the gift of he is in control of the engagement and therefore the marriage and therefore is in some sense um, he is the one who's calling the shots so to speak and not again not because the woman is somehow inferior it's just that's the way it is done in that culture and so he's the one who calls the shots but again that would give I think credence to those who hold it would be better understood from those who hold to the view that this is a father who is giving her daughter away. The only problem with that is the other issues that I had raised really cast doubt on that. And so, again, I think what we have to do is put ourselves in that culture 
the guy is the one who calls the shots, even more so than in our culture today. You know what I mean? And therefore, the giving would be naturally understood uh, from the male fiancé's perspective. Do you see what I'm saying? You and I see it only from the father, because in America, the father gives the daughter away. He's in charge. He kind of calls the shots, but not so back then. There was a more of a dominance between the male partner and the woman in the confines of the engagement and the marriage. And therefore, it's phrased that way. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, I never thought of that. Very good. Yeah. Put, yeah, put, get that on tape. <laughs> Just when good. you think about the betrothal of jo- between Joseph and Mary, yeah. Mary was, was found with child. Joseph determined that he was going to put her away. It was yes. a one unilateral decision. Yeah, that he, and the, I like the term even, that he was going to put her away. Exactly, yeah, well said. While we're on this section, yeah. I was just going to mention that uh, the ESV, I think, agrees with uh, your rendering there oh, okay. in verse 36, um, verse 36 of First uh, Corinthians 7. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, mm. it is, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. That, that's exactly what I think, how it should be rendered, yeah. So... Yeah. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Yeah. So then he who marries is betro- his betrothed, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think there is a give in there, if I remember, because I, I remember thinking the same thing you did, Karen. Um, I think that's ditto me. I'd have to look it up. I'll look it up afterwards. I'll put up the, the screen. You got it? Do you have it? I, I was so terribly confused because there is no give in the text. It's oh, there basically isn't. the one who marries or the marrying. It's uh, Oh, I thought there was. Um, um, so okay. it's the one, the one oh, who marries the marrying. Good. And the one who's not marrying. Good, um, good, good. So I was, I was a little confused and lost there for a second. But, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't... Um, um, I should have maybe focused on because that's another huge clue right there. That's huge. Yeah. So yeah. The, one, the one who marries. So, in, you know, obviously there's some yeah. range of meaning with that. But in the context, it seems... Yeah, so that's even more devastating then. If it's betrothed. not... In the, I thought there was. But you know what? Now we have a really devastating case. Yeah, it really can't be referring to um, a father giving his daughter away. Yeah, very good. Wow, that's good stuff. Um, yeah. With, with that on that verse, I think um, Keith was kind of talking about it, but with the NASB's rendering, and, and not to discount a translation or anything, but do yeah. you think that's kind of that? It's his betrothed uses a possessive pronoun, and it, kind of our tendency is to go, oh, wait, it's, you know, this guy owns his betrothed, which mm. certainly isn't what Paul's intending, but I think they're almost trying to, because of that, Right. Our right. tendency, oh, you don't, you don't own your fiancé, so we got to completely father. shy away from yeah. this and go with the father because, you know, a father can own his daughter. So yeah, I think you're right, Paul. That's a really <laughs> so. good insight. And um, it just shows you how in the battle of hermeneutics we have to divorce ourselves from our culture. We have to think in the culture of their day. And the other thing it shows you is that translations, remember, they're committees, and they wrestle with these things, but these men are not infallible. And so that's why we have to do our homework on these passages um, and that's why 1 Corinthians 7 in particular is a really, it's a difficult section. It's very dense. There's lots of issues with it. Just because 
a lot of the translations, the translators are wrestling with very difficult grammatical matters and so forth. So, yeah, but those are good uh, takes. And therefore, I think it just proves our point that, yeah, it has to do with a man who is uh, betrothed to his, his wife-to-be. So, yeah, Patrick. Looking back at 25 and 26, I think in both evangelical circles and in Catholicism, yeah. there are those who teach that there are one set of uh, a way of living and and beliefs that most Christians should follow or can follow. Uh-huh. And then there's another set of, of more advanced beliefs or practices that the super re- religious or the in Catholicism called the religious, those who have taken religious orders, but okay. um, evangelicals will call it just uh, more spiritual people or, or a, a upper tier almost yeah. from our point of view. Why shouldn't I interpret these verses in that way? Because it certainly seems like, well, most Christ, for most Christians you can get married, but if you want to, if you think you can, or if you um, feel you have the gift of celibacy, you can go to that higher level and, and be celibate, take that vow of celibacy. Yeah, because, Patrick, the whole context of this whole section in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 40, is that Paul has been taking shots at those who hold to that view that you gain some spiritual favor by being celibate. He's been taking shot after shot after shot at him. And so that's why it's so important in verse 26 when he says, I think then this that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. He is agreeing with their slogan, but it's for a completely different reason. You see what I'm saying? In other words, it's not that you gain any spiritual advantage. Paul has belabored that point. So the issue isn't spiritual advantage over here. The issue is divided attention. Or as Keith rightly pointed out, now you have two sinners <laughs> and who are prone to the problems of the world within the confines of marriage. And so now your problems are exponential. It's that kind of idea more than any spiritual advantage. But yeah, and so, but what's interesting is your question and your, your comment there, that's exactly what the issue is. And you're, you're hitting at the core issue. That's what Paul is trying to avoid is that somehow you're more spiritual if you're celibate. Yeah. I think another way of looking at it, if you are a man and you have the gift of celibacy yeah. so that there is no passion and you're fine, imagine a guy sitting in his study reading the Word and not having any other thoughts. Sure. Your life is easier. Isn't yeah. I don't think there's anybody here that would <laughs> question that your life is not easier if you have no passions to struggle with because it's not... The context isn't a man struggling against his passions to overcome them to obtain the gift of celibacy. Now, let me just say this, though. For my wife who may be listening to this, certainly our lives won't be nearly as fulfilled, right? (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. You're right. (laughs) The context isn't... It's the antithesis of having a man struggle with his passions to obtain the gift of celibacy. It's Or a woman that has... It's... Having somebody that has the gift of celibacy, if he continues on it, you're sure going to be a lot freer from problems. That's right. Those yeah. who don't have the gift of celibacy, if you try to obtain it that way, I promise you, you'll have a lot of problems yeah, too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Yep. That's good. I've been married a little over two years, maybe. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> June 20th, I remember our anniversary. Oh, good man. You put um, yourself in the spot there. Yeah. So I have much less experience than many here, but, I, you know, a lot of people ask, well, how do you like being married? How is it, you know? Yeah. And 
what I'll tell them a lot of times is that it's a lot better than I ever thought, mm, and it's yeah. also a lot harder than I ever thought. Mm. Not because Amy's particularly a difficult wife or anything, <laughs> but because it, yeah, those concerns, those cares yeah. are multiplied. Both yeah. on the one, on the one side, I realize just how selfish I am in yeah. being married, which is good because that sanctifies that. It does. So it's a blessing there. But yeah. uh, you know, at the other, the other side of that is that. Yeah, it's double the cares. Yeah, that's you know, right. I feel everything Amy feels. I have her to support me, you know, when I'm in pain too. But you know, it's yeah, it's double the concern. And yeah, um, but at the same time, it's awesome. So you're right. And there's always a typically a, associated with marriage. There's going to be a family involved. Just the other day, I'm trying to study and get things prepared for the Faith at Risk conference, and I hear crying. And I run up there. A little boy's got his fingers in the door. Wham, wham, wham. You know, hold him. Get him all better. Get him some milk. Put him back to bed. You know, he's all better. You know, get him in bed. Go back downstairs. And then a little while later, he's coughing, carrying on. You know, then it's run upstairs. Go get the water glass. So, I mean, to me, I was thinking about this passage as I was going through that, that just even there, there's this divided attention. If I had been single, I could be a hermit in my basement. I'd have all my PowerPoints done for the next 12 months. I'd be sitting back. You know, that's kind of the idea that you have. Um, <laughs> But anyway, I'm not complaining either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get, but it's like a blessing, and I feel more fulfilled being married, and that's what my calling is. So let me get that on tape. But you're right, Paul. That's very well said. So with that, friends, um, we'll see everybody upstairs, and um, I think we're in the Book of Acts again today. I think.